If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation about the influential medieval nobleman Simon de Montfort with historian Sophie Ambler. Sophie's recent book, The Song of Simon de Montfort, explores how the crusading 13th century earl led England's first revolution. Our section editor, John Borkham, spoke to Sophie at our History Weekend event in Chester this October to find out more. So Sophie, many Britons are probably familiar with the name Simon de Montfort, but don't necessarily know much about him and what it was he actually did. To begin, I just wondered whether we could go back to the very start of the story. What is Simon's family background? Um, Where is he born? So Simon de Montfort was from a noble family who had their lands just outside of Paris. He was born in the early 1200s into a family that was to become very famous in the early 13th century um, because his father, Simon the Elder, was leader of the Albigensian Crusade. So in 1209, um, Simon the Elder was elected leader of the armies of God um, and the church, and he was leading an expedition against the uh, so-called Cathar heretics of Languedoc. And so Simon, uh, when he was just about a year old or so, was brought down from the area around Paris by his mother, Alice de Montmorency, to join the expedition. And that's where he spent the first 10 years or so of his life um, with his family uh, growing up in a war zone. And he's in France when his father dies in 1218. What sort of impact do these experiences have on his upbringing? Mm. How does it shape him in his early life? So the the death of Simon de Montfort the Elder had a huge impact on um, Simon as he grew up. Um, So his father was killed in 1218 at the siege of Toulouse. Um, His uncle was killed during the course of the same war, as was another of his brothers. Um, So the Montfort family as a whole suffered a a really um, striking rate of attrition as a result of the Albigensian crusade. So um, when Simon was growing up, he grew up listening to stories describing the feats of his father. Um, So Simon de Montfort the Elder um, is not known as a very, um, well, he's not a very celebrated figure today because of the effectively 
war crimes that he committed in Languedoc as leader of the Albigensian Crusade. But to his family and to many other knights in the early 13th century, he was a hero because he was a great crusading leader, um, because he was known for his um, his courage uh, in battle and um, the way that he looked after his men. So as Simon was growing up, um, he was listening to the stories describing the feats of his father, learning to revere him as this heroic individual. And he was learning a particular model of leadership from his father, particularly um, sticking true to his oath to crusade no matter what, no matter whether it drove him into poverty, no matter the dangers that he had to endure. Um, this was the way that Simon de Montfort the Elder was described as leader of the Albigensian expedition. And this was the model that young Simon was expected to follow. So there, you would say that there are quite a lot of expectations placed upon him as a member of this dynasty. There were huge expectations. Essentially, um, before the Albigensian Crusade, the Montfort hadn't really been um, a very famous crusading family at all. We don't know that they played any major part in any previous crusade. So when the Albigensian Crusade came along, it was their chance to make it big. And when the chronicles, when the stories were written up um, about the Albigensian Crusade, they placed Simon de Montfort the Elder right at its heart. He was absolutely um, the, the center point of this expedition and everything depended on his leadership. And so when the Montfort sons were growing up, um, they were um, listening to stories told about their parents as leaders of this expedition and their father in particular, and they were being encouraged to follow in their footsteps to become leaders of these great crusades themselves. So how does Simon come to England? Um, well, he was a younger son and he wasn't expecting to inherit much land in France. So um, when he came of age, when he was about 21, he decided to follow a family claim to the Earldom of Leicester. Essentially, his father had inherited the Earldom of Leicester through his mother, but hadn't been allowed to take up the inheritance um, and that's because of the wars between King John and Philip Augustus. It wasn't possible any longer to hold lands on both sides of the channel. So um, Simon, in coming to England um, as a young man, had to convince King Henry III of England that he was to be trusted and that he should be allowed to take up the Montfort claim to the Earldom of Leicester. And that's exactly um what um, Henry did in the end, he, he offered to grant him the oldham. So he finds favour with Henry um, and eventually in 1238, he um, actually marries Henry's sister, mm. Eleanor. Why is this a controversial marriage? Well, it's controversial for a couple of reasons. At the time that Simon and Eleanor, the king's sister, married, Simon um, was not one of the major uh, power players in the kingdom. So he had been granted the Leicester lands. Um, he was only, let's say, middling scale along, among the ranks of England's barons at the time. He didn't have a vast fortune. He hadn't proven himself uh, politically or militarily, as far as we know. So um, Eleanor, the king's sister, could have expected to marry somebody um, who had more than just a famous name. So it was slightly controversial for that reason. It was controversial as well because 
King Henry should have asked the um, advice of his men before he made this agreement that Simon and Eleanor could marry. Because the sister of the King of England was a major commodity on the marriage market, the king was expected to um, treat it as a major matter of state and take advice before he allowed her to marry. And he didn't do that. He essentially allowed Simon and Eleanor to marry in his private chapel um, without anybody else um, knowing about it. And that caused major disruption. A lot of barons objected to that going ahead without their say-so. But why did Henry allow that marriage to go ahead then, if if that was the case? Well, we get a hint of it um, a couple of years later, when the relations between Simon and Henry started to break down. And we have a description of an argument that took place between them. And in the course of this argument, Henry turned to Simon and said, I regret more than anything allowing you to marry my sister. I only did it because you seduced her before the marriage and I had to let it go ahead. So whether or not that actually happened, as Henry is said to describe it, we're not entirely sure. But we do know there does seem to have been um, real affection on both sides. Um, Eleanor before she married Simon, she'd actually been widowed at a very young age. She'd been married off at the age of 12 to um, William Marshall the Younger, a very um, one of the great magnates of the kingdom. Um, he died when Eleanor was in her teens, and Eleanor had actually taken a vow of chastity. And that might have been um, in order to remove herself from the marriage market and effectively mean that she couldn't just be married off by her brother to whoever he wanted. Um, but it did mean that when Simon de Montfort came along, Eleanor effectively threw her vow of chastity out the window. And that was quite controversial as well. So as you say, the relationship between Simon and his brother-in-law is uh, fairly civil at first, mm. and it breaks down. What else sours this relationship? Mm. Well, there's a couple of reasons, really. Um, one is is, um, and this happened at around the same time as the argument um, I've just described, Uh, Simon was heavily in debt. And that was partly because he had had to buy out his uh, brother from the rights to the Earldom of Leicester. He didn't have a huge income from his lands in Leicester. Um, He also was committed to going on crusade, which was a very expensive enterprise. And he'd had to take out a loan in order to cover himself. And um, he needed a surety for that loan. And he named King Henry as his surety, but without asking Henry's permission first. So he was presuming on Henry's goodwill. And Henry really took exception to that. And that's what set off the whole argument in the first place. Um, So that's one of the big reasons that they fell out at first. Um, But there were various arguments over the years, and partly that was because um, Simon believed, or he was right in believing, but was very um, insistent on pressing the claim that Henry owed him and Eleanor quite a lot of money from the dower lands from, from Eleanor's first marriage, so they thought they were owed quite a lot of money by the king. But also, it was partly personality. Um... We have a record of of another argument that took place between the two of them in the early 1240s in France, 
during the course of an expedition that Henry had led um, to reclaim some of the lands that had fa- his father had lost uh, around Bordeaux in Gascony. And the expedition went horribly wrong. Um, Henry was forced into humiliating retreat and Simon had to fight very hard to cover um, his withdrawal in order to stop the king being taken uh, prisoner by the King of France. And uh, we just have a record from many years later of what Simon said to Henry when this was all over. He said, you ought to be taken and locked up like Charles the Simple. There are houses with iron bars in Windsor that would be good for keeping you securely inside. I mean, imagine saying that to a king. I mean, imagine saying that to a king like King John or Richard the Lionheart or Edward I. You would never get away with it. Um, And this is exactly what Simon said to Henry. And the record that survives of this, um, this argument is from decades later when Henry brought it up in an arbitration. So clearly it cut at him very hard. What happens in Gascony? Well, um, Gascony was um, a territory that belonged to the King of England. And um, it was a territory that was suffering a great deal of um, sort of minor rebellion and disorder um, because the Gascon subjects, um, although they were supposedly loyal to Henry III, they basically just wanted to do their own thing. And so um, in the early 1250s, Simon was appointed as governor of Gascony and he was sent over there by Henry III to essentially to put the Gascons in their place. What is the result of this? Well, um, it sort of depends who you ask. So when Simon was set up as governor of Gascony, Henry put him in place for a number of years and promised to stick with him no matter what. And essentially, Um, when he gave Simon his orders, essentially set him up as a sort of military captain um, to to put the Gascons in their place. Simon came in with quite a heavy hand. um, And the Gascons, after not very long, came to Henry and complained of the way that Simon was treating them. And this turned into um, a a huge cause of um, anger from Simon because Henry welcomed the Gascons to his court and essentially allowed them to make all of these complaints against the way that he had treated them, allowing them to say essentially whatever they wanted, um, throwing against Simon whatever allegations they thought could stick. Um, And there was no requirement to give any kind of proof um, to support these allegations. No evidence was really... um, asked for or required. And so essentially it became an exercise in mudslinging. And Simon really felt that his lord, his king, had um, hung him out to dry. And it looks like the other earls and and barons of the kingdom essentially agreed with Simon. And they didn't like the fact that one of their number was being subject to essentially very irregular procedures. Um, All of these complaints were being allowed to um, be thrown against Simon without any proof. And so they stuck up for him and Henry had to stop all proceedings and the um, it soured their relationship massively. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What did he think that he was doing in leading this cause? He probably thought that he was um, following in his family's footsteps as a crusade leader with the expectation probably that he would die um, as a crusade leader and die for his cause. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's move forward to 1258. Um, Things really come to a head. Uh, Simon confronts the king in Westminster Hall. What are his main grievances? Um, Well, there's a few grievances um, that have been building up for the past few years. So one of them is called the Sicilian business. Essentially, um, Henry had made an agreement with the Pope um, that he should go to the kingdom of Sicily and conquer it on behalf of his second son, Edmund, and set up the Plantagenet dynasty in Sicily. And the Pope had sold Henry the right to do this for 90 or 100,000 pounds, which was an absolutely colossal amount of money. So Henry had made this agreement uh, to conquer Sicily without asking the advice of his men, um, but they were then asked to pay for it, and the church was asked to pay for it. And people took exception to this, especially because they didn't believe that Henry III had any chance of conquering Sicily. He just wasn't very good with the sword. So that was one um, point of contention. Um, Another was the king's um, half-brothers, the Lusignons. So these are the the sons of Isabella of Angoulême, Henry III's mother, who, um, after the death of King John, had gone back to France and remarried. Henry had welcomed his half-brothers into the kingdom and set them up as his supporters. And they had essentially um, been behaving in a very uh, ungovernable manner. They'd been, you know, taking out their feuds with with other barons through violence. Um, They knew that they could get away with pretty much anything they wanted to because King Henry would protect them. 
And so there was a lot of bad blood between the Lusignans and um, various of the barons across England, including Simon, um, whose manners the Lusignans had attacked. So that was another big uh, cause for, for um, dissent. Um, but when we come to the events of, of 1258 and what happened in this parliament uh, in Westminster um, in the spring of 1258, um, it's very hard to actually point to one thing that made it happen. Essentially, um, we, have, we have chronicle accounts of, um, of this parliament that describe uh, a flaring argument between Simon and one of the Lusignans. It almost turns into, um, into a fist fight and Henry has to get in the way. Um, we have records of the king asking for more money for um, the Sicilian business. And um, this obviously wasn't looked upon very favorably. We also um, have a record of another baron named John Fitzgeoffrey going up to the king and demanding justice against the Lusignans who'd attacked one of his manors and killed one of his men. And Henry effectively saying, oh, um, look, let's not worry about that. Let's not fight. Let's just get on with things, which effectively amounted to refusing to do justice um, for one of your men. Um, we also know that there was um, the kingdom was suffering grievously at that time from a famine as well. So there was a major famine in 1257, 1258. Um, people were dying by the roadside. And that probably doesn't um, make the king's request for money um, for an expensive foreign conquest look any better. But when it comes to um, what set it all off, it's very difficult to say. Um, what seems to have happened, actually, is that a small group of um, barons, including Simon and the Earl of Gloucester and John Fitzgeoffrey and a few others, got together and swore an oath that they would support each other, come what may, against the Lusignans, and that um, in a sort of all for one and one for all. And they decided to take matters into their own hands. Probably they were egging each other on, trying to, um, well, they were persuading each other that they had to take some sort of action. And the result was that um, one morning they put on their armour and marched on the King's Hall at Westminster. And um, they laid their swords ceremoniously um, at the entrance to the hall to show that they weren't going in armed, but they were still wearing armour, so it, it showed what their intentions were. And they marched up to the king, and the king was um, pretty shocked, as you can well imagine, and said, what is this, my lords? Um, am I, wretched fellow, your captive? And they said, oh, no, no, not at all. However, um, you must now hand power over to us. And we will set up a council. We will appoint um, the great officers of state and we will make all decisions about the running of the kingdom um, henceforth. So these are um, the provisions of Oxford. Mm. Um, and it's quite a, a radical moment, it seems, in English history. Mm. How long does it last? Well, um, it's a crazy radical move. I mean, nothing like this had ever happened before. Essentially, you're not just saying, um, you know, we're not happy with the king. You're saying we're so unhappy with the king that we're going to try doing it by ourselves. 
So the king is still there in the background, but a council is governing on his behalf with the help of parliament. Um, so it lasts well throughout 1258, 1259, and into 1260. And during this time, um, the council, with the help of parliament, puts in place a whole series of measures um, to reform the kingdom, to um, cut out corruption amongst the king's officers. Um, and there was a real attempt to improve conditions for ordinary people. They were invited to come forward and make their complaints if they'd been mistreated by any of the king's officers or by the baron's officers as well. It breaks down um, somewhere between 1260 and 1261. Um, essentially, the party that had been putting forward these measures um, disintegrated. And those who were left effect effectively capitulated to the king and Simon stormed off to France, saying that um, he would rather die without land than depart from the truth as a perjurer. So saying that they'd all sworn this oath to uphold these reforms, to uphold the provisions of Oxford. And anybody who abandoned that oath and gave in to the king essentially was an apostate, a perjurer. And um, he wasn't going to be associated with them, so he stormed off um, in a uh, great cloud of fury. <laughs> okay, so, but what's the, the flashpoint? How do we arrive at the Battle of Lewis in mm. 1264? Mm. Well, Henry's mistake really was to throw out the provisions of, of Oxford entirely. And although the part of the provisions that took power away from the king was controversial, there were lots of measures in there that, that many people thought were a very good thing, you know, anti-corruption measures and so on. So actually attempting to chuck out the provisions entirely um, angered a lot of people. And a lot of people who could have been one to his side decided in the end, no, um, actually, we need Simon de Montfort back. We need the man who stuck to his guns and refused to abandon his oath and was entirely committed to the provisions of Oxford. So in the spring of 1263, Simon was invited back to England to lead a sort of a new wave of reform. And he did that through violence. He essentially sent out posses across the country to attack royal lands and impose the provisions by force. Um, and this essentially sent the, the country into a state of civil war. And this came to a head in the spring of 1264 in May, um, when the two army, two armies met in battle at Lewis in Sussex on the 14th of May. And it's uh, it was to be a, a monumental victory for Simon, a victory that wasn't necessarily expected. Um, now, as far as we know at this point, this was Simon's first pitched battle. He'd been involved in various sieges and skirmishes, but we don't have a record of a battle that he took place in. Um, it's always possible that one went unrecorded, of course, but um, what he showed was a quite astounding feat of, of uh, generalship of military skill. He led his men through the night, um, through um, up to the top of the Sussex Downs, so that when Henry, who was um, staying in, in Lewis, 
woke on the morning of the 14th of May, he saw Simon's armies arrayed on top of the hill above him, offering battle. So Simon had the tactical advantage. He had the element of surprise. Um, and he went on to um, defeat the king's forces and to take captive Henry himself and Edward, um, the heir to the throne, future Edward I, as well as Richard of Cornwall, um, the king's brother. I mean, you describe in the book, it's a, it's a triumph. And mm-hmm. um, what effect does this have on his um, standing? Mm-hmm. How does this inspire his followers? Well, it had essentially showed to everybody who had been there or who heard about it that God was on Simon's side. So this is an age where where battles are not won by the strong, they're won by God's favour. Simon's forces were outnumbered and that went to show just how much um, God must have supported him. We know that before the battle, Simon and his men were signed with the cross as crusaders. So Simon had turned this into a holy cause and that allowed his men even more to claim that they were fighting for a righteous cause. It gave them um, the will to fight, but it also um, helped to surround him with this reputation of being almost God's instrument. There's actually an account um, that spread from the battlefield at Lewis that St. George and St. Thomas Beckett were sighted on the battlefield. Um, they'd turned up to support the Montfortians, which just went to show um, that God's direct intervention um, was behind the victory. And so this put Simon up there amongst the greatest um, crusading heroes of his of, of the Middle Ages. He was seen as almost um, semi, um, uh, semi-divine in the sense that God's will must have been operating through him. Now, of course, that didn't apply to his enemies and those who, <laughs> who hated him, but for those who were willing to follow him, it gave them a huge motivation to, to um, take up arms in support of Simon. So what does Simon do next? Well, in, in the summer of 1264, um, Simon and his party went about setting up a new council to govern the kingdom for the foreseeable future. So King Henry and other members of his family were held captive and a parliament was held in London in the summer of 1264. And this parliament established a new constitution for the government of England. So um, this constitution said that there would be a committee of three who would appoint nine men. And those nine men would make all decisions about the running of the kingdom um, for the foreseeable future, according to a two thirds majority. So it's a formal written constitution approved by parliament for the government of the kingdom. So this is um, this is set up in the summer of 1264. And at the same time, um, the Montfortians had to contend with the threat of invasion from France because the Queen of England, Eleanor of Provence, was um, at the French court. Her sister was the Queen of France. So King Louis of France was her brother-in-law, and they were supporting Queen Eleanor in putting together an army and an armada to come to England. So in the summer of that year, the Montfortians basically called out um, the best part of the kingdom to defend the coast 
um, from this threatened invasion. It didn't come in the end, um, but it, it, as far as we can tell, it was one of the biggest musters um, for homeland defence um, that the country had seen hitherto. Simon's rise to power, it has, and it has terrible implications, particularly on England's Jewish population. Mm. Oh, could you tell me a bit more about that? So um, during the course of, of um, the period when the Monfortians are in power, essentially they were incredibly short of cash and decided that the quickest route to gaining, um, gaining coin was through raiding England's Jewish populations. So we know that the Jewish people of London came under attack, as did the Jewish people of Winchester and potentially other places as well. And we have a couple of accounts of what happened in London. And it essentially describes um, the Montfortians um, basically setting out uh, in the Jewish quarter to um, massacre anyone they could get their hands on. So they'd set out with the intention of getting money, but were clearly um, clearly determined to vent their um, religious hatred in any way they could. And the mayor of London and um, Hugh Dispenser, who's one of Simon's men, attempted to try and get people to the Tower of London to keep them safe. Um, but we know from independent accounts that perhaps four or 500 people were killed in this massacre. And um, of course, quite a large sum of money was raised and it was handed straight to Simon. Um, we know as well that one of his sons uh, led a similar attack um, on the people of Winchester, on the Jewish people of Winchester, again, probably in order um, to raise money but at the same time killing anybody um, that um, that they crossed. Little more than a year later, after he seizes power, um, things finally come to a head in Worcestershire, don't they? Mm. How do we get to the Battle of Evesham mm. in 1265? Well, um, we get there through um, a series of, of very dramatic events in the spring of 1265. So between January and March, Simon had held the famous parliament uh, at Westminster. That was, you know, the, the parliament that is supposedly the first House of Commons because men from the towns as well as uh, men from the shires, as knights of the shires were called. And during the course of that parliament, he'd, he'd humiliated King Henry and humiliated Edward, the heir to the throne, and uh, in front of all their people, essentially. Um, at the same time, he had seized a large amount of land from Edward um, under, you know, sort of the cover of a legal arrangement, but he'd seized that land nevertheless. And that really, if Edward wasn't set against him before, he certainly was <laughs> then. Um, and in the spring after the parliament, um, basically Edward was aided, uh, was supported in escaping from his prison in Hereford in very dramatic fashion. One of Simon's men, Thomas de Clare, who Simon trusted entirely as Edward's jailer, um, betrayed him. Um, probably it was, it was part of a plot to release Edward. Um, so this man betrayed uh, Simon, he helped Edward escape. Edward um, galloped off on his horse to join the Earl of Gloucester and raise an army. And that army came after Simon. So Simon had set out to meet them 
um, in the Welsh marches, um, attempting to sort of take them on before they could get a grip on the country. And Edward and the Earl of Gloucester were extremely effective. They trapped Simon behind the seven. And he made very he made uh, one or two attempts to escape. Um, eventually, he was able to break through and he was hoping to head um, east into England, perhaps up to Kenilworth, um, his great fortress in Warwickshire. Um, but he was caught um, at Evesham by Edward and the Earl of Gloucester. So he's so he essentially finds himself trapped mm. in Evesham and he's slain in quite a dramatic fashion. Um, what, I mean, what does the nature of his death tell us about chivalry? And perhaps it's, it's as you say, the death of chivalry. What does yeah. it tell us about its decline? Well, um, this the Battle of Evesham was a turning point, really, um, in the way that warfare was conducted. So in normal ordinary European warfare at this time, so battles between Christians, it wasn't normal um, for knights to kill other knights. They would usually take them captive for ransom. This all changed at Evesham. And we know about this from an eyewitness account of the, the morning of the battle that was probably written by one of the monks of Evesham Abbey. And it was, it was Evesham Abbey um, where Simon was resting after a long night march um, with his men on the morning of the 4th of August, 1265, when he heard the news that Edward um, was, was just to the north of the town. And that's when he had to make a decision as to whether to fight or to flee, and he decided to fight. Um, this account also tells us that before the battle, Edward had stopped his men just north of Evesham and had selected 12 knights to hunt down Simon on the battlefield and to kill him. So this was a, a cold and calculated decision um, to wipe out Simon. And that's exactly what happens on the battlefield. But um, Simon was killed along with, with many other knights as well. So we know that the knights who, who decided to go into battle with him and stood around him um, as the battle went on uh, were cut down as well. And we also know that that wasn't the only law or expectation that was broken that day. Um, many of the men who were um, sent running from the battlefield of Evesham uh, took refuge in Evesham Abbey Church. They were expecting, of course, to have sanctuary there, as, as was the custom. And we know that um, Edward's forces followed them into the church and cut them down as they um, clustered around the high altar seeking sanctuary. Because when the monks came back, um, you know, they encountered a terrible scene of just bodies and bodies and bodies piled up in their church. So this really was um, a, a turning point in the way that battles um, could be fought. And these sorts of things are just starting to um, occur around this time, not just in England, but in, in other places in, in Europe as well. Um, in Italy, in the wars of the Sicilian conquest, there are executions and killings of noble people as well. Um, and then, of course, we know about the Scottish wars, as, you know, when Edward took power and went after the Kingdom of Scotland, we know um, what happened there. So this really um, 
these final decades of the 13th century are a turning point um, because although in the generations that followed, um, knights fought according to, to what they called chivalry, it was a very different type of chivalry um, to what had been known before because killing um, noblemen on and off the battlefield became acceptable. So finally, how do you think Simon de Montfort should be remembered today? Um, well, I think many people, if they remember him, think of him as a parliamentarian, as somebody who set up um, the insistence that parliament should be an integral part of the gov governing of the kingdom. So a big part of the provisions of Oxford was that there should be three parliaments a year, come what may, not just when the king wanted them. Um, and obviously it was Simon who summoned this parliament in 1265, um, to which men from the towns came as well as knights from the shires. So that's um, how some people would remember him as the sort of godfather of the House of Commons. I think if you were to ask him how he would want to be remembered, he would say as a crusader and as a monfort. So if we, we look at the way that he presents himself as leader of this, um, this cause, this holy cause, as he saw it, um, he very much presents himself in the model of his father. He um, uses the same statements. He uses the same model of leadership um, that he has learned as a young boy listening to stories about his father in the Albigensian crusade. And by the time even that Simon um, took up this holy cause as a crusader, um, his family had essentially all, almost all gone before him to the grave. Not only his father um, and his mother and uncle um, and all of his elder brothers had all been crusaders and all but his mother had died as crusaders, most of them, you know, in, in very bloody ways. So how, what, what was, what did he think that he was doing in leading this cause? He probably thought that he was um, following in his family's footsteps as a crusade leader with the expectation probably that he would die um, as a crusade leader and die for his cause. So how would he want to be remembered? Um, I think as a, as a Montfortian crusader. That was Sophie Ambler. Her book, The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary and the Death of Chivalry, is out now, published by Picador. If you're interested in medieval history, don't forget that tickets are now on sale for our medieval life and death days. These two days of talks from leading experts are taking place in London and York in March and May 2020. You can find out more and buy tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Rebecca Clifford will be speaking about children who survived the Holocaust. 